This is the comic syllabus uh, at our home at multiversitycomics.com. Uh, here at the comic syllabus, we read widely and we dig deep. And I know the folks at Multiversity do the same, so check that out if you haven't. Um, always appreciate getting feedback from you. And uh, of course, if you found this by some means other than being a subscriber or following the podcast, we encourage you to do that wherever you find fine podcasts. And uh, every week on Sundays, we have our audio-only um, version uh, where we compile all the segments throughout the week. But if you follow and subscribe at um, a video-friendly uh, podcast app like um, Apple Podcasts or like um, uh, Pocket Casts or something like that, you will be able to see all of the segments in video released throughout the week uh, where we get to attach some visuals to our visual medium that we love. This is the Polybag segment where we talk about comics coming out and we are um, looking at a few books that are out for the week of Wednesday, July 7th. Um, and uh you know this is a week what is what is the marker i should hold up a newspaper um as if we out and we still got physical newspapers uh i guess this is the week where um is this a tablecloth is a <laughs> is a relevant thing anyway today we're gonna talk about carmen number five from image comics by guillaume march um memo number one from boom studios um, written drawn by Sass Millage, um, Ordinary Gods number one from Image by Kyle Higgins and Felipe Watanabe, and Wind number eight from Boom as well from James Tinian the fourth and Michael Dialinas. Um, also, we're going to talk about some other uh, books that I'm picking up this week in our mentions and a little bit of a mailbag because we got some feedback, which is precious uh, you'll hear me go on and on about that but we begin with carmen number five um carmen is by guillaume march an artist uh who we've been aware of um in a lot of um dc work and things like that but um march uh has uh, is a european creator and has um you know uh, uh translated this this book um you know written and drawn by march um translator dan christensen uh i've been talking about carmen for a while um when the first issue came out i thought that the art to was just such an interesting and unique rendition of these kind of familiar um story things about death and kind of like angelic you know carrier messenger figures um as well as the everyday life of the um of the main characters uh one main character in particular um of course content warning overall for this story the the story deals with suicide uh as well as um some other difficult topics but it's really about a woman who has taken her own life um in a, in a sort of situation of unrequited um long time love for her childhood best friend um and i've been you know I, I thought that the art i've i've thought throughout this whole series that the art is um really phenomenal um i'm interested in the renditions of of women's anatomy um that march has employed partly because as you can see here um carmen who is our sort of our lead um i don't know afterlife 
mm, agent, agent of the afterlife, uh, carrier person figure. It, it has this really interesting, you know, design of, of sort of an underlying skeleton. As you can see, other characters who who play that role, who play that supernatural metaphysical role, have that same kind of. We can see their guts or their bones or something like that. Um, and then, of course, the the main human character uh, that we follow. Um, is largely a uh, you know a um, naked woman floating around European streets somewhere, and so there's some ways where this book has been. I mean, I think I, I've heard some um, uh, discussion about it as as, as very po body positive in some ways, um, but there are still other shots that hint at a kind of exploitative feeling shots and angles, and and I, I don't know how to to feel about that. Um, I, I don't feel totally comfortable. It feels a little bit gaze, gazy, you know, um, but there's maybe also um, I, other readers may receive it with um, uh, appreciation that it, you know, these characters and their sort of fleshliness is really um, embraced by the visuals. Um, so um, your mileage will vary um, depending on your perspective. I think March's visual storytelling is pretty pretty amazing pretty exemplary in terms of you know just the use of space and these um again very um you know we've seen so many stories about the afterlife um and uh you know things stories like uh, movies like the recent um pixar movie soul to take um some familiar uh ideas to put a whole new visual spin on them is i think really interesting and i think carmen does that in a compelling way and it turns out that um, March who I've primarily known as an artist not only has visual storytelling skills uh, that are exemplary but it turns out their storytelling storytelling is not not so bad I mean Carmen it's not Neil Gaiman um, but it's it's been capable it's been effective um, and I actually admit I thought that Carmen number four when I finished issue four I thought that, that was the end because the end of that issue does have a kind of final scene or scenes that were poignant, satisfying, maybe a little bit would have been a little bit abrupt. Um, but I was happy to hear, as I thought from the outset, that it was a five issue arc. Um, and, uh, and, and actually, it kind of fits because even though issue four ends in a certain way, the end is not the end, right? Which is kind of the theme of the, the book itself, where um, it really is writing the lion and asking the question of when, um, when death is is has finality and whether or not it is possible to to make um to 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 alter uh, kind of the, the course of destinies as is kind of talked about in these opening pages and so without giving too much away um if you haven't read any of carmen i just you know there's in this page you can see i think it's the, one of the first few pages that that it's there's a kind of negotiation going on in the in the whatever the bureaucratic heavenlies or whatever where um where that main character, that main human character who's taken uh, their, her own life and is now floating around and seeing things um, is, you know, it, it turns out that um, this superstar carrier, Carmen, who we see on the cover, um, is, is, is doing a lot. <laughs> and, and they don't know how they feel about that. Uh, meanwhile, Carmen, it turns out, it is in fact not only the, the titular character, but really um, it's... Uh, Carmen's interaction, Carmen's intervention, that is um, the live negotiation, that is the kind of question in play. 
And, um, and so we see those scenes of the afterlife organization that rules and how their delivery of souls is really kind of tied to the, the kind of blue code or red code or something of the eternal destinies of these human characters. But, um, I mean, I think it's interesting that there's this kind of, um, you know, negotiating of the rules and, 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 and Carmen being heroic because um, they're kind of flouting this, this simple, you know, messenger carrier and, and instead kind of actively intervening to perhaps change the fate of our main character. Um, and I think it's just interesting that, you know, the way that this, this afterlife hero is intervening is, is, is really just a matter of bringing, showing the deceased the right scenes and the right people and kind of effectuating a change of heart. So there's a, a, a little bit of a, you know, the Christmas Carol, uh, you know, Dickens sense of things. There's a little bit of like a lot of, you know, afterlife stories that, that, that we've mapped onto our consciousness. Um, Coco or, or as I mentioned, soul um, or ghost. There's this kind of optimism in the second chance that especially is unpacked and explored in in, in um, Carmen issue five. Um, all told, I think it's just, uh, again, a story that I, I thought was interesting, um, asked, raised some interesting questions and posed in a very contemporary set of kind of like values and ethics. Um, but most of all, visually, um, what Kian March does is just really fascinating. And, and so uh, Carmen number five um, wraps up this series. Um, I think uh, this is some this is a series that has um, made me really interested in March's art um, at, at least and um, and does some some interesting uh, does pose some interesting uh, questions about uh, life and the afterlife so <laughs> there we go and we go from uh, Carmen 5 to a new book um, Mamo number one which is another book where the visuals really hooked me um, I pre-ordered this book completely judging by the cover, which you can see below. Um, and, uh, and the promise that that cover art was in fact also the art inside. Um, written and drawn by Sass Millage, uh, I believe lettering and, and color as well, soup to nuts. Um, Sass Millage is an artist who is kind of emerging anew. I think this is the first uh, sort of series. Um, they've they've sort of piloted all the way through. Um, and I'll read a little bit of the the, the uh, solicit copy um, because this, this hook was enough to get me side by side with the art, which is kind of what I want to talk about. Um, Boom is proud to, to showcase the incredible artistic vision of Sass Millage. This is, again, reading from the, the preview copy. Can, can Orla O'Reilly embrace her destiny in order to bridge the divide between humanity and the fairy world? Orla, the youngest in a long line, line of hedge witches, finds herself pulled back to her hometown after the death of her grandmother, Mamo. Without Mamo managing magical relationships between the townsfolk and the fae, the seas are impossible to fish, the crops have soured, and Joe Manalo's attic has been taken over by a poltergeist. Now, Orla and Joe will both be pulled into worlds they never wanted to be part of. Can the two girls work together to save the town? Um, Sass Millage has done a Dick Grayson graphic novel. I forgot about that, The Lost Carnival. Um, but this is uh, her first original series. Um, and uh, I think that that uh, what's what's great is that the first issue really does deliver on the promise of all that preview stuff that made me want to check out this book. Um, and what I think what when I read that copy, when I read that um, that solicit text, I was a little worried, uh, I guess, 
<laughs> call me an old person but i was a little worried that this art which which on the cover and you can see in this preview page seems to just um take its time um to really just kind of you know render a beautiful world would um give way to a story that felt compelled because of some suppositions about its audience or their patients would just um, become a kind of like rush you know would feel like it needed to be like so many cartoons um, uh, you know awesome and beautiful animated works that just felt like they needed to pow 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 hit you with a lot of story and um, and what I can say reading this first issue is that there there is a slower pace I mean you definitely do a ton of introductions there's a lot of exposition um, but but sort of well done um, exposition I, sh I, I should say and you're definitely heading towards the discoveries and into the action and into the the conflicts of the story it's very understandable very approachable it's uh, it's even fun to kind of watch the interplay between these two characters um, that you can see on the cover uh, Orla is uh, as mentioned in pursuit of like help my help my mom and there's something in my attic which makes it you know it's a, there's a there's an urgency to um her pursuit and she's looking for um i forgot no, i forgot her name but the other um the other girl who is kind of the inheritor of of um uh, oh sorry orla is the uh is the is the uh witch character i should have said and uh joe is the one who whose mom is is not well anyway joe is um is really kind of in pursuit and orla is hesitant is reluctant to step into um what is being asked of her and i think um what i want to say reading the first issue is that i as i was saying i was worried that there would be a kind of frenetic sense um the way that some similar you know stories in this similar genre are but it's it's not at all in fact the, the um millage is able to take the kind of space to let the art spread out um as you can see in this kind of beautiful um opening spread um there is in joe a little bit of the urgency that has has her on her bike really trying to find um a help but meanwhile the world behind her stretches out and i think that the story does that it, it it's a it's a it's an oversized um first issue it's about 40 pages um and yet i feel like i read like you know 80 pages because the characters um get to kind of hold back there's a little bit of tension and mystery that's built while the world has a chance to really kind of show itself and you know we do learn a lot um joe is is the kind of persistent inquirer um and orla is this the, the reluctant witch and mamo who is kind of this big magical figure behind it all um, but again, it's all drawn out really slowly and there's this hesitation that lets things kind of brew and um, and there's just a remarkable amount that of storytelling that fits into this first issue without ever feeling that kind of frenetic rushed pace. And I think a lot of that is because Sass Millage can do the writer artist thing where as a, a writer and artist, you can be quite in control of the density of the storytelling in terms of the art and dialogue and actions and reactions. And so the, the, the two characters can kind of create this push-pull tension that really lets the pace play out. Um, and this cover and, the, and that, that first page spread make you feel like it's a language page, a language pace. Um, but actually, 
you know, the average page is maybe six, seven, eight um, panels deep, but you never feel like it's um, overly dense. Um, and all in all, it's just totally gorgeous, as you can see. So um, this really is, I think, my recommendation of the week, the book that I, I really hope that we don't, we don't overlook as a comics reading and buying public. Um, memo number one, pretty great, pretty great, by Sass Millage from Boom Studios. Um, so we'll be following that. We'll be paying attention to that. I think that's a um, promising start. Um, meanwhile, to go to another series that's starting out, um, Ordinary Gods number one is um, out from Image this week, written by Kyle Higgins um, with art by Felipe Watanabe. Um, and um, I just, I think that Higgins has been um, uh, doing pretty well lately. I mean, there's uh, like Radiant Black, um, uh, series with Marcella Costa. Costa also at Image is um, is doing really well. Higgins is writing this Ultraman series at Marvel. Um, but this book is moving away a little bit from that sort of Power Rangers like um, story to something that I think is even different um, from Higgins's previous work with like Cowl or some of the big two stuff that he's done uh, into the realms of mythology and gods taking on human form and this kind of idea of cycles of like gods inhabiting people and living in history and in our society. You know, a little bit of what like Wicked and Divine was doing, but like less hip <laughs> um a little bit of like what the eternals at marvel has been doing lately or or, or um there's an element of um the the series the birthright series from dc with kind of like this kind of surprise entry into everyday life um that's going on in this first issue um felipe watanabe our artist here has done a variety of dc and marvel work i believe they're brazilian and it really does a stellar job here i mean i i think between this cover art and and this sample art on this early page you can see um uh, watanabe really showing showing his stuff um issue one is 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 kind of playing out like uh contrast between these everyday characters you can see here are I think what is our main character he's kind of at the center of the cover um, who is, you know is part of a family a little uncomfortable in their skin um, and with their their families and their roles and things like that um, and meanwhile parallel to that something going on where there's this mythology about a set of gods who ruled over these regions with particular attributes and they're in these cycles where they um, are in this contention this long-running contention throughout history with each other and there's this luminary special role or something like that um, a bit of a twist at the end in terms of how all of that is playing out but the um the predictable part which is really kind of signaled throughout so i don't think it's too much of a spoiler is that these gods and the way that they kind of endlessly fight throughout history with each other they inhabit human beings in different generations who are not always aware that they are the, in these roles um, so there's kind of a bit of a, like a discovery going on with each new time that this fight um, spr springs up anew among human beings. So we really pick up in the heat of the action. And again, these aren't start these story elements are not before. Um, as with Radiant Black, I think um, Kyle Higgins is drawing from a lot of familiar story elements, beats. Um, ingredients um, but I think Higgins and Watanabe seem to know that like freshness is not necessarily in the ingredients that you include but in how you combine them and so there is a way that I can see Ordinary Gods is kind of laying out pieces that although I, I, I can expect them um, you know are you gonna go this way or are you gonna go that is kind of where the surprise uh, you know is living um, 
I think two things to call out. One, Watanabe's art. Um, I have not uh, sort of recognized enough before. I remember seeing um, some cyborg issues um, uh, back at that uh, Rebirth launch. Um, but I really like in this book um, noticing Watanabe's kind of, I feel like the art, the art is a kind of reconciliation between, um, I want to say like a Neil Adams era line work and precision with a you know 1990s Jim Lee era sort of sense of style um, and then a very kind of contemporary um, sense of design going on so I uh, really like this 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 art um, and you can kind of see uh, both in in this page which really is, is heavy on the action and the, and the costumes and so forth and in the everyday life pages that we saw earlier um, and then second is that uh, Kyle Higgins uh, has been doing a lot with the sort of extra prose pages in the back. Um, this is this is all over Radiant Black, which is you know at least in the first arc about a writer. Um, so there's a lot of writing, and um, and you can see that there's a lot of sort of um, mapping out the, the mythology of this world going on in the extra prose piece in the back, um, which I did not read too carefully to be honest. Um, it's content. Kind of tends to be the kind of thing that when I do a reread I, and, and I'm really immersing myself in the world I like to really dip into those further but I just think it's interesting that Higgins uh, like the radiant black character um, is writing comics but also clearly has this uh, you know wants to exercise the the writer writer <laughs> more broadly speaking and does that in the in the back matter um, so Ordinary Gods number one uh, I think it's pretty good um, I'm interested to see where it's going. I think uh, for me, the jury's out on whether it's something I want to follow to the end. Um, but I, so far, Higgins is amassing a pretty great uh, track record of doing this, um, even if the elements are. Um, and then our fourth recommendation, our fourth book of this week is Wind number eight. Um, I'm finally talking about the series kind of in the middle of um, the second arc. So it's a weird time to enter it and draw attention to it. But I think it's been one of the best new series of this past year. Um, Tinian's story has the feel of this kind of classic Tolkien type fantasy, but um, you know, some, I think more derivative works of that, that Tolkien um, note have this opposition of absolutes that, that just doesn't feel very rich. <laughs> um, but that's not the case here with wind. Um, and uh and and so uh james tinian the fourth is writer of course um uh, michael dialinas dialinas um i always say that name wrong with apologies um is our artist um and world design on the lettering and um and despite those you know those fantasy um pieces the elements we have you know wind is our our main character um who is secretly magical, um, has the pointy ears, and is in a world of humans and uh, has to flee because this kingdom of humans is trying to really weed out the magical elements in their midst. And so there's um, there's a lot that's gone on. Read the first arc. Uh, definitely recommend it. As I said, one, I think one of the best new series going right now. Um, but in addition to those fantasy elements, I think the, the presence of, of queer non-binary characters whose like, kind of humble longings and heroic decisions really make them appealing and fun um, um, different and and um, issue eight is right smack as I said in the in the thick of the second arc 
um, right on schedule. We've gone from like introducing the world and who the characters are and forming, launching this little band of characters who has to take this journey while, you know, you know, bad, bad characters are in pursuit of them and so on. Um, and now we're crossing over into the bigger world and, and into new, new territory, new threats, etc. While we have these vampires in pursuit and so on. Anyway, you can see we're right from this preview page. We're right in the midst of that kind of um, that kind of action. Um, there have been deaths in this series, and so there is um, there's definitely stakes. The stakes seem feel big and and feel really um, real. Um, and Wind, our main character here, with kind of a slight spoiler, of course, has has wings, and he's learning to 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 have those wings and use them. And I and I, and I feel like there's this sense of this young character coming of age discovering um, a superpower, really, a magic that is also considered, um, uh, make, makes them considered a freak. And there's a way where um, Wind, along with other sympathetic characters, are um, coming to terms with their own inner beauty and glory um, while being pursued and, and um, you know, uh, cast out, um, selected for punishment because of their freakishness um, is, is I think a use of uh, fantasy storytelling for young people that um, super important, um, super good. So um, Dialinas's art is perfect uh, for this series. In my humble opinion, it's a better fit, I think here than um, The Woods, which is a more horror sort of series that um, that they, they, they did earlier with Boom. Um, I think there's a playfulness to uh, Dialinas's uh, style and design that really make this story, you know, like sometimes on the edge of scary and heavy, often very comical and lighthearted. And, um, and, and, and so there's a tone that's a lot like many of my, my family's favorite fantasy things going on right now, like new dragon prince on Netflix. It's kind of tonally perfect for young fantasy consumers. So, um, you know, it's just, you just like these characters, uh, even the obnoxious prince. And I think um, I, I am, I'm, I'm hoping, and I think it's been doing well, but I'm hoping that this will be a long and ongoing kind of epic. Um, it's kind of have the mark has the markings of that, and will become like a very library friendly um, epic for young readers and teen read readers for for a long time to come. So um, it's weird to touch touch base with wind at this point, but I haven't really had to t uh, gotten to talk about it quite yet. Um, another good issue in the midst of the second uh, second arc of wind. So check that out. Um, other things I'm picking up this week. <laughs> the nostalgia tour goes full circle for us children of the 80s as Masters of the Universe Revelation number one comes out from Dark Horse. Uh, I haven't read it yet. Uh, the you know, I think this week uh, um, or in this episode, if you're listening to the audio podcast, I'm going to be talking about Fist of the North Star. Between Fist of the North Star and and Masters of the Universe or He-Man, we're definitely in, uh, you know, the pop culture of Paul's uh, uh, youngest childhood <laughs> formative years. And so, um, well, here we are. Um, pl plenty of uh, opportunity for therapeutic work for me. <laughs> Self-examination. Masters of the Universe Revelation number one should be interesting. Um, looks like it's not quite as radical as the She-Ra series on Netflix, um, but certainly putting the uh, He-Man mythos through the 
wash cycle of our modern gender politics should be interesting. Um, Noctera number five from Image, Firepower 13, and Good Asian number three from Image, um, continue on some series that I'm following. There's a new series from Black Myth, uh, sorry, from Ahoy Comics called Blacksmith that I'm curious about, so I'm going to check that out. Um, the X-Men number one debut from Marvel, and, and we'll get into some Marvel and DC titles that I'll run down now that I'm also reading this week, but uh, if you're new to the podcast or still picking up what the heck I'm doing here. <laughs> the, um, the Marvel and DC, I will follow at a three or six month delay in the segment that I call the Infinite Unlimited, where we'll look at um, DC and Marvel titles on their respective um, Marvel Unlimited apps to read them when they come out in a kind of format. But anyway, new this week in comic shops, X-Men number one, um, Jerry Dugan and uh, I think it's Pepe Raz, um, kind of, return to or slightly restart the X-Men within the uh, the uh, Dawn of X, Reign of X, Krakoa um, time period. I didn't list them, but the other X-Books I'm also following. Um, the Thor and Loki Double Trouble, which is um, Mariko Tamaki and Gorihiru's four-issue fun Thor and Loki series, timed perfectly for the Loki TV show, uh, wraps, it, wraps itself up with the fourth issue this week. America Chavez, number four, is also good one that that i've been reading captain america number 30 is sort of the grand i'm sad to say it um uh, farewell finale of Tanahasi Coates' time period writing at Marvel for now. Um, Runaways 37, continue to follow. And then over at DC, there's a Batman Secret Files. I just like the Signal character, so I'm going to check that out. Green Lantern number four in this um, surprising era where Jeffrey Thorne and Dexter Soy have me reading Green Lantern, which I'm normally uh, not a lantern um and then swamp thing number five wonder girl number two and then crush and lobo again another title that um i didn't think that i would be reading but thanks mariko tamaki you're too good for me to to resist um so those are the things that i'm picking up this week probably left something out um while we're here though a bit of feedback and an interaction and let me just say i live for this stuff i don't have uh comic syllabus doesn't have or need a huge lit- listenership. Um, if you do listen and you like this, um, with shouts out to you know Frank Cesar and, and Zach Wilkerson for some encouraging tweets. Um, I hope you, if you are listening, I hope you do feel like you've, you're, you, you know, you found a hidden gem because there's not a ton of you. Um, and I've come back. It's summer break for me, so um, as an educator, and so um, the work is light, which allows me to kind of pump out a lot of episodes and work out the kinks of trying to do this video thing. Um, but um, I will not be able to do this much for for forever <laughs> once uh, the fall rolls around. And so I think I'm kind of trying a lot of things out and feeling out where there is some receptiveness um to what we're trying to do here at comic syllabus and um some 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 uptake so hey do me a favor spread the word um you know those those mentions those tweets um telling folks you know rating and reviewing on you know apple podcasts or wherever you might do that to um to leave some positive words uh and and the point of this was the interaction is is what i'm here for i'm here for the uh you know the messages of um what you're thinking and reading and so um with that a huge um shout out and appreciation to mark tweedale from 
uh, also at Multiversity, Mark is um, super, super knowledgeable and I love Mark's insights all the time. I get to write reviews um, with Mark and with uh, Nick Palmieri and others about Avatar, Last Airbender stuff at Multiversity. Um, but Mark, uh, I think, is listening to the podcast sometimes. Uh, I was talking about Monstrous um, on the last Polybagged installment and Mark wrote um, with some thoughts that, that were really kind of I think resonating with the, the the thought that that there are very few um, fantasy comics right now, um, and few you know comics targeted toward uh, adults, younger younger adults, that have that sort of detailed world building that we see in Monstrous. And so, um, so I, I just I mean I think I appreciate Mark um, really kind of answering the question I threw out while I was rambling about Monstrous. Um, what else is there out there that's like monstrous and i think um mark chimed in a, a kind of agreement that there really isn't anything quite quite like it and um mark pointed to the maybe one reason being that the the creators here are 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 committed so hard to fleshing out this giant world that is mature um that doesn't feel this this need to inject you know comedy or or satire to um, to this world bid, uh, world building uh, that is so deliberate and thoughtful about costumes and locations and language and to put in that kind of work. I made a comparison to um, George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire and, and um, I think Mark was, um, was resonating with that as well. Um, and so the, the challenge of doing that in comics where, as Mark pointed out, um, you really need two creators who are who are dedicated to that sort of large-scale storytelling um, is, as to quote Mark, that kind of partnership is so incredibly rare. And so we, we do, we do uh, I think, we, we do get to witness something special going on with Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda um, building out Monstrous. They have been. So um, thank you, Mark, for that feedback. And um, let this be an invitation to all of you. Uh, if you're listening to... Um, yeah, to let me know what you think. Let me know what you think about our uh, four titles that we talked about today, as well as um, what you're reading. Um, and thanks so much. And let's keep on reading. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. Hey, comic syllabus friends. Um, this is the uh, segment, a little bit extra from what we normally do, where I want to talk about um, part one of the 2021 Eisner nominees. Um, I enjoy when this list comes out, maybe even more than the announcement of the winners, because what I love about awards um, is uh, not that they make 
very much sense to me why who wins and 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 the wherefores and so on um or the intrigue or the politics but just actually the lists i just love a good list of things that i can um compare against you know panel of judges group of voters and say you know what things have i not discovered read appreciated enjoyed that others have so um i am when the Eisner nominees come out, I'm here for it. And um, and I just want to run through those lists today with y'all comic syllabus uh, listeners and, you know, maybe some of my own thoughts. And um, and uh, so for many of these categories, I'll run through the nominees, what I know about them, some of my thoughts, and also um, tell you about one in particular that stands out for me, which may or may not have been the uh, one that I, I voted for. Um, when, with my Eisner vote um, as an as an educator, as a comics educator. So we begin with Best Continuing Series. And um, the nominees here are, um, are include some things that were new series and that we'll see in the Best New Series category as well, such as Department of Truth, and then some old standbys like Usagi Yojimbo. If I'm not wrong, last year, Bitterroot won in this category, or maybe it won in Best New Series. I don't know. But it's one, one of my favorite comics, as you may have heard. And also apologies if you still hear fireworks. We are the day after the 4th of July. And um, what can I say? I live by Oakland. Um, the town loves its fireworks. So anyway, Bitterroot, um, one of my favorite comic series going. Um, Gideon Falls has um, a real intriguing, um, uh, you know, sort of horror sci-fi premise to it. I think I read the first arc of that. I was very impressed. I always liked the, the team up of Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino. Um, that's a great series. Department of Truth, also super intriguing. Also, you know, slightly scary, slightly conspiratorial. Um, really interesting and, um, and you know, dark in, in many ways. Uh, I like that series as well. And trying to keep up with it uh, it's got a ton of mysteries that's part of the point um i am a huge fan of the daredevil um run by chip zadarsky and primarily marco chichetto right now going at marvel and uh you know i mentioned it a, a couple times in the podcast since we've been back um post um post quarantine here um so those are all great series um Stillwater is one that i admit i haven't checked out um by uh, Zdarsky and Ramon Perez. I, I, um, you know, I've been sort of saving up maybe uh, to read that in, in, in a long chunk. Um, intriguing story as well about, I think, a town where people are, are coming back to life. Um, so there's a lot of new stuff, and I, I count here four image series. Is that right? Bitterroot, Department of Truth, Gideon Falls, and Stillwater. Uh, I, I count two Zdarskys <laughs> in, this, in this set. Um, but the one title that um, is just a standby, and I'm always like, it, it's shown up on this list of nominees for Best Continuing Series a bunch of times, but I just feel like it's a year where Stan Sakai and Usagi Yojimbo, you know, um, it's not it's not like we, they, it always deserves to be the Best Continuing Series, but it's a year where, if you may have heard in the last Polybagged uh, episode, uh, IDW is reprinting some classic Usagi in color. Obviously, that's not why, you know, it deserves this award, but it's just an, an acknowledgement. Um, this is a year in which, you know, I just feel like um, Stan Sakai is very much continuing to adapt um, Usagi, right? And and the, 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 the runs that we had in 2020 were both 
you know, further examples of, of um, Sakai's brilliant storytelling and still fresh, you know, still finding ways to uh, even now introduce new characters and more backstory and, um, you know, variations in how these stories are told that I would just love for this year, despite the sort of value of all of the other nominees, for this to be a year where, um, one of the years where we acknowledge um, Usagi Yojimbo's greatness. Um, so I may have put my vote in that direction. <laughs> um, in some ways, I think many of these other series split the vote for me um, in terms of, of, of hitting a similar uh, you know, chord for me of, of appeal. And last year, Bitterroot was my favorite and, um, and I think it went on to win. I don't know that Usagi has that kind of a chance this year um, since I think people will take it for granted as something that's always there. But I just, if there's a year to reward something for just always being special and being especially special, I feel like 2020 was the year for Usagi. So that's best continuing series nominees. Moving on to best limited series, um, we have a bunch of things that, this was one of the categories where I was most like, yes, my tastes are confirmed. <laughs> because there are things I liked that didn't show up here, but the things that did show up here, I also really, really liked. So, um, Barbalian Red Planet um, by Jeff Lemire and um, Tate Bromball and uh, uh, Gabriel Hernandez-Walta um, was one of the miniseries that I just, I have a feeling would be here. Um, it was a slow build, and um, but to like, take up the issues of society's non-tolerance, um, both in the native sort of Mars of of Barbalian and here on, on our as well. Um, uh, LGBTQ um, characters like Barbalian. Uh, I just thought it was done with great sensitivity and drama. Um, Decorum is one of those series that, um, like many Hickman things, I have no idea what's going on most of the time, but Mike Huddleston's art on it was utterly uh, mind-blowing. <laughs> I, I loved decorum and I, I never could figure out what, what was happening. Um, I'm waiting for the the handsome hardcover volume to show up um, in shops for me to reread it, try to make some sense, some heads or tails of what that was about. Um, nonetheless, a very beautiful book and, and Hickman um, is always doing something even if I'm not 100% crystal about what that is. Um, Strange Adventures I feel like I understand why it's on this list. Perhaps it deserves to be on this list. But at least the issues that came out in 2020, I wasn't that excited about them. It really is the twists and turns. And it was signaling. I knew this is where it was going. But it really was the twists and turns that we've seen in the issues that come, have come out this year that have really won me over to that series. And, uh, whoops, that's mine. And, um, and so I, I didn't want to give it to Strange Adventures quite um, for 2020's Best Limited series. Um, I was, however, a huge fan of Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. Loved it, collected it, read it, laughed up, laughed it up. Um, Matt Fraction and Steve Lieber kind of doing Jimmy Olsen with some, some you know, uh, genealogical history of Olsen's family. And, uh, and then, you know, playing that out with great humorous effect. Um, and so I liked Jim, Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. We'll see it later on the list. I will give it its propers at that point. Um, uh, collected every issue, had a bound, um, love it. Not my favorite limited series of the year. And uh, again, where these Eisner lists 
do something really fun for me is letting me know about something I didn't know about, which I had seen and heard about We Live by the Miranda brothers, uh, Inaki and Roy Miranda. I think they're brothers. Forgive me if I got that wrong. Um, from Aftershock. But for it to land in this list of nominees, I was like, oh, I got to read that. So I picked it up on Comixology, and, um, and it's pretty good. I'm, I'm about three issues into the first arc, which is collected in the... Um, and I'm enjoying it. Um, however, I, I wanted to give it a shot to totally enrapture me and win me over um, so that I could vote fairly. Um, it didn't in its first three issues. Uh, not enough to, to dethrone what is uh, my favorite, which is Far Sector. Um, listeners will not be surprised at all. One of my favorite comics of the last um, 12 issue run um, from uh, you know, sci-fi superstar N.K. Jemisin. Um, Jamal's Campbell's incredible, luscious, gorgeous art and visual world building and all kinds of things. Um, Far Sector is one of my favorite comics, period. And so definitely, despite um, some stiff competition in this category, I had to, um, you know, give it, give it my nod as something truly special, I think. Um, and it's fun to see Joe, um, the, the main character of Far Sector, showing up Green Lantern run currently going. So um, I think that's a character that has some solid staying power and had a, a, a great. Um, all right, we move to best new, ser new, best new series. And uh, a lot of, again, heavy hitters in this category. I had to say, Philadelphia is the one. Um, maybe <laughs> it's the kill in the title and you know my aversion to things that are slightly horrific. Um, but I haven't read Philadelphia. Um, I don't apologize. <laughs> Looks pretty cool. Um, I, I didn't even know that it was, you know, I didn't even hear that much critical buzz around it. So that's the one that I was a little surprised was on this list. Um, but the rest, no surprise at all. Um, Al Ewing's We Only Find Them When They're Dead is um, just graced with gorgeous art by Simone DeMeo that um, just, you know, the way that DeMeo uses color and dark and light um, in the, uh, in the context of this space, slow un unfolding space melodrama, really uh, multi-generational about, you know, scavengers of the bodies of gods and so on. Um, it's a great new series. Um, I've been collecting it in single issues because um, just so beautiful to look at and, and I trust Al Ewing as a storyteller. And even though it was a, I think it was a, again, a sort of a slow rumbling start. It's really momentum some force as it's now swinging into its second arc here. Um, crossover, I also get it. Um, talked about it in the last Polybagged as well. Um, I am a, you know, I, I can I can see the, the merits of the Cates and Shaw collaboration. Not my favorite in the world, but, um, but doing some great things. Department of Truth, once again, just um, uh, full of, of um, chewy conspiracy to, uh, to gnash your teeth. Um, but my favorite new series of the year, um, you know, it, it, from this list, I should say, um, but one of my favorite new series, um, for real, has been the, the Kelly Thompson, Elena Casagrande, Black Widow. If you haven't seen this, um, I mean, it was definitely meant to come out timed to the run-up to the movie before COVID delayed all of the MCU release dates and so on. Um, but you could, just couldn't have a more power-packed creative team on it. Um, Kelly Thompson has been a great writer since she um, entered the uh, the field and 
gotten just gotten better and better i feel like um and now to where there's this marvel architect status i think that thompson has and um uh, i think uh she's just a fantastic writer the premise from issue one of this black widow series um this sort of like suddenly nat is in um, san francisco and seems to have lost her own you know recall of her identity she's got a family and you know friends uh i think it's what's going on with nat trying to fish out what's what's happening um so it's just it's one of those intriguing like displaced to a whole totally different life in a totally different world and i won't spoil what happens with it um but just a, a really cool story really cool story premise um but it is the elena casagrande art that makes this book so you know like sumptuous for me it's just it's it's gorgeous and um the way that casagrande every issue you know um, thompson writes this page of what i forgot she called it something in the newsletter there's a name for it and i forget but basically one splash page multiple scenes that are sequential and you can kind of see the action across a single spread a two-page spread uh, it's just fantastic i love it um and the art is 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 just really beautiful um so um black widow is my favorite new series of 2020 uh if you told me in 2019 that that was going to be the series that i i you know really jumped at i would have been totally surprised so that's the best feeling right when comics can surprise you that way um the best single issue category is where i have to admit i had to play the most catch up um i read hedra by jesse longern when it um uh lonergan forgive me uh when it first came out um and it was intriguing i i i, I it was a, it was a nice um little mind bend uh of a moment um but it didn't really stick um, I liked Sports as Hell from Ben Passmore a lot. Talked about it way ago, way long ago, with um, with Johnny. Um, how you doing, Johnny? If you if you're listening, I miss you. Um, with Johnny on Comic Syllabus, and um, I had no idea about Stanley's Ghost, a Halloween adventure um, from Storm Kids. I did did not know about it, but once I, once I saw it on this list again, picked it up on Comicsology and. I, I I admit still being a little puzzled by its presence on this list. I get it. It's a lot of fun and uh, and just a really well executed Halloween kids comic with um, some layers. So I could see that. So in the in the sort of Carl Barksian um, manner, I think uh, Stanley's Ghost um, is a good issue. Um, it's just a, such a strong one of these is not like the others. <laughs> um, but I, I think I, I understand why, and I won't actually um, delve too deep into it. But worth picking up if you're seeing this list and you're like, mm, "What's that?" Um, and then John Ridley and um, Giuseppe Comincoli's illustrated um, other history of the DC Universe has been a super cool series um, that I, I I really have enjoyed digging into. I think I've only read read. Um, there's a lot of pros to work through. I've only read the whole of I think the first two but have just kind of dipped into the other ones about um, Rene Montoya and, and other characters in the DC Universe. Really seeing the uh, what it would be like if we truly saw the story and the worlds of DC from the perspective of these characters of color. Um, but this uh, first issue with um, Jackson uh, Pierce um, is, is, um, is a good one. I get why it's on here. However, here again, my nod to, of appreciation to the Eisners. 
Um, the uh, the Burning Hotels by Thomas Lampion from Birdcage Birdcage Bottom Books, a um, an issue of a comic I did not totally off my radar <laughs> until it was on this list. And so when I saw the nominees, I uh, tracked this one down, um, read it. Listen, if there's one thing from this episode where I'm sort of like, yeah, if you haven't read that, you can go grab it <laughs> now that it's on this list and it's gotten the attention from it. Um, I, I've enjoyed a lot of stuff that Birdcage Bottom has come out with. And so the Burning Hotels is good. I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, it is, in fact, um, so good that it, it it rose above the other single issues for me. Um, I this is the one of those categories where I I'm clueless as to how a um, the, the the you know esteemed team of um, Eisner judges arrives at what lands on this list. Uh, I do like the diversity in the in the um, in the list of things here, um, but uh, what makes each of these you know have the merit of of being a single issue that lands on this list? I don't know, you know, Jordan uh, meme of that guy shrugging. I, I don't know, um, but I, I do like my attention being drawn to these things and finding things like burning hotels. So uh, biggest recommendation of this particular segment, go pick up the burning hotels. You can you can get it on maybe on Gumroad or, or somewhere online and uh, yeah, get, treat yourself. Um, best short story is again a place where I, I um, Missed many of them as they originally came out. You know, I uh, read Det Detective 1027, and to be honest, the the Greg Rucka and Eduardo Riso story that's in there and nominated, it didn't jump out at me. I, I think I may have just glossed over it pretty quickly. Um, but, uh, but you know, there it is. Um, two pieces by Chan Chow, one from Elements um, Earth, sort of a cycling through different elements anthology by creators of color um, that I've picked up uh, two of the other ones I think but didn't didn't this one so I haven't read parts of us um, but I did read and it's available online you can see there's a link there but if you go to the eyes on the list um, I think I'll try to attach in the show notes this episode a direct link to the list of the, the full list of the Eisner nominees from you know um, Eisner website um, but the soft lead I imagine lead as a reference to Clark Kent, perhaps, um, is available online. And um, I did a quick read of it. And I, I, you know, for for Chan Chow to appear twice on this list, definitely doing something right. Um, and uh, and this story is is a kind of like non DC Clark, but not Clark, but Clark, and and Bruce Wayne, but not Bruce Wayne, but definitely Bruce Wayne. Um, really, just kind of sitting at a table having a conversation, and it becomes a really um, uh, you know, conversation about identity. And it reminds me actually in the art in some ways of Tilly Walden um, work, um, which I mean as, as, a, as a comparison of high praise. Um, I also uh, note that on this list is uh, Garden Boys by, um, by Henry McCausland, um, which is in now number eight. And I read now the anthology from Fanographics. Um, every issue until eight. <laughs> so I have picked up now an array, but I haven't, as of this recording, read Garden Boys yet. Um, so I this is a little bit of an unfair pick for me to have, you know, selected one without having read them all. Um, but I did read when the menopausal carnival comes to town um, because um, menopause, a comic treatment which is a work of graphic medicine, uh, compilation of graphic medicine pieces, the press, um, 
with uh, by um, I'm gonna mispronounce this name, but Zerwick uh, um, is just a, a, a very cool collection. One that I both uh, enjoyed. Um, there were playful bits. There were um, reflective bits. And um, you know, as a as a person who will not biologically experience menopause directly, um, actually was was pretty enlightening. It was just really good to to kind of see these different stories that come at this different topic. And a, a fine example, that volume of what graphic medicine can do in terms of the um, informative and therapeutic value of just considering our health, our lives, our bodies, um, pathologies, you know, struggles um, through comics. Uh, Mimi Pond is, is um, one of my one of my favorite um, folks who just has had a big local impact in comics for those of us in the Bay Area. Um, so I liked this story a whole lot. Um, however, ultimately, it was um, Connor Williamson's story in the New York Times, I Needed the Discounts, which was in a series of New York Times. I think they were selections or short stories or pieces, basically kind of envisioning our, our near future, um, our near futures and, and what the world what shape the world would take in our um, technology-filled lives. And Connor Williamson's um, kind of reflection on people having bought into technologies that, you know, we're sort of giving ourselves over to this <laughs> kind of um, existence, um, uh, you know, and, and all the surveillance that entails and all of the, um, you know, data that we are sort of giving away of our lives and, and so on. Um, uh, ultimately because, as the title says, I needed the discounts. Um, it just spoke to that, that nerve of, of, of unease that I have um, about how we are living our lives. It's, it's just great. Um, so, so for me, that was the, among, uh, again, a set of uh, the one I would put forward and recommend above all. Um, so then we now come to the best writer category. Again, I said this is part one, so we'll get to, we won't get to all the categories in this episode, but we'll talk about some of them, uh, some of the other categories in a, in a part two coming up probably next week. Um, so I got to get on the soapbox a little bit with best writer. Um, not the first and certainly not the only one to notice, um, that the, you know, there was room enough for six best writer, um, nominees and they're all white men. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think there is some, some great diversity among them. There's incredible value in what they write. Um, I recognize, you know, um, James Tinian IV writing um, often openly from uh, uh, the perspective of a, a queer writer. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I recognize the value of all of their work, their perspectives, um, but also come on we got to be able to do better than this and not just for diversity's sake quote unquote but um but because there are but because Jin Wen Yang was an incredible writer in 2020 um and I know he shows up in the writer artist category in a second um but like the aforementioned um, Kelly Thompson uh, Ron B was amazing in 2020 uh Chuck Brown and David F. Walker I mean they're I, I don't it's, it's actually uh, defeating the the the, um, the argument for me to just try to list the names of people of color and women writers who deserve it because it shouldn't even need to be said, right? And you know, I don't know. This is an argument I'm tired of having. Um, I'm even tired of the circumlocutions of 
moral logic that I hear people making to say, well, we can't do anything about that. Um, yes, J Jonathan Hickman's amazing. Yes, Matt Fraction wrote some amazing work. Um, yes, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips and so on. Yes, yes, yes. But also, um, so I'm not even going to talk about who my favorite writer is on this list. I'm so disappointed in this outcome. Um, you know, there's a little sense of the Oscars so white um, phenomenon that we, yeah, just, I don't know, we can do better. Um, um, yeah. Having said that, I also have to note that the best writer artist category is also really cool and in a way has within it some of its own kind of diversity. And also, it appears, I could be wrong about this, but overwhelmingly um, white male and Asian uh, male presenting. Uh, I think that um, we're doing a little better in this category. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I have been reading Ginseng Roots um, and sort of subscribed to get it. Um, Craig Thompson is... Um, I think working his way through what stories I should tell and how I should tell them. And, um, and there's some stuff in there that I was just a little bit, especially as a Chinese person, I was like, hmm, what are you doing there, Craig? Um, but I think there's a lot of honesty in it as well, which, you know, the Craig Thompson of Blankets has, uh, knows that a self-searching lens is his, is, is sort of his best, his best note. Um, and um, Adrian Tomine's book is um, also very searching and honest and embracing. Um, I have not read, but also have picked up this Mr. Invincible book, which I keep hearing about being a really good kind of alternative, interesting, you know, superhero take um, for kids. So I am, I can't wait to read that one. Um, and Junji Ito is a master. I'm also so terrified. <laughs> from the few things that I've read of Junji Ito that um, I have not read, I don't, I do not read in the daylight sufficiently to engage deeply with Junji Ito's work. It is so terrifying. Um, and fans of this podcast will know I am a huge fan of Gene Luen Yang. Uh, you know, there's a, a thing that sits right there uh, tell, of him telling us to all to read off of Dragon Hoops. And, um, and so I am, um, always in the bag for um, Jin Yang's work. However, um, for me, the achievement of The Magic Fish this year, such, such an amazing, good graphic novel that um, if that, uh, I, I may have voted in that direction. <laughs> I may have voted for um, Trung Le Nguyen, um, whose work was just pretty, pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, so very beautiful um, and also in a way you know um, personal and and self you know self-searching like some of these other creators that I've mentioned but fresh so the magic fish if you haven't read it um, that is the book of 2020 that I, I would like to pick up the graphic um, yeah so that's our best writer artist category and that brings us to let me see if I can get this well that brings us to the end of our list Sorry, I thought my, my slideshow had died here. Um, but that um, that's our part one of our Eisner nominees for the for the year. Um, 
come back next week um, and we'll do a segment with some of the other categories. Um, meanwhile, I hope that going through this list is encouraging or inspiring for you as it does, as it did for me, as it does for me, of, um, of other things, other comics that are, are great, that are out there that you may have missed um, or overlooked, um, as well as acknowledging where we are as a, you know, as an overall field in comics. So probably more to say about that next week as well. Um, but thanks. Uh, let's keep reading.